this now. Go ahead and turn um, to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 15, through 25 verses, six verses. Lord, open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word, from your law. God, it's a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our path. Father, teach us today how to live and to walk by your promises, how to live by faith. Lord, this is a hard passage, God. We need the Holy Spirit's help and applying it and understanding it. <clears throat> so we lean on you right now, Lord. We look to you to be our teacher. We thank you that Jesus is the good shepherd. We thank you that he leads us beside the still water. He leads us into green pasture. We thank you that it is the good shepherd that has laid down his life for us. We thank you that Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And today we want to hear your voice. We want to hear the voice of God. We thank you that the Holy Spirit breathed these words as the Apostle Paul wrote out of a burdened heart for believers who were going down the wrong path. God, there's something that he wants us to understand today. The Holy Spirit does. He wants us to apply these things to our lives. So help us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, or I speak according to man, though it's only a man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant which was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law... It is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose does the law serve then? It was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promises or to the whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. All right, you can be seated. Uh, promises are very important, and they're important to God because that's the way God deals with us. He deals with us through covenants and through promises and through His faithfulness and His steadfastness. Um, 
Before we get further into the worship, though, I just want to just stop and just, just thank everyone today just for the, for the spirit that's in this room. Um, when they met in a church in the New Testament, and we're a New Testament church, nobody sat in rows, I'm sure, because it was in somebody's house. And they didn't have any professionals to do any of it. It was God's people who just came together and walked out and lived out their Christianity as a family. And if we ever depart from that at North Bible, North Valley, whatever we call ourselves, <laughs> Bible Church, we're, we're missing the boat, aren't we? And, and I, I, I think that's something that God has blessed us with as we're small and we are a community and we're a family. And, and I appreciated uh, Adriana and Kelly and Caleb and the worship. I was listening to Alistair Begg, and I don't listen to a lot of people on the radio or podcast, very few, and, and I just heard a glimpse of him, and, I, and then I said, okay, that was a, a good blessing. But he was talking about how worship has really, really veered from what the New Testament idea of worship is. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. And, and I, I sense that at this fellowship, that, that God is here, that we're speaking to one another, that we're not entertaining anybody, that Christ is on the throne and he's being glorified and honored and worshiped and praised. And when Paul would go into a, a house meeting, it said that he would speak, but the Greek word is dialogue. And so I don't think it was a monologue. And we've really kind of regressed to a monologue, haven't we? And so I just want, I know it'll probably make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I want you to think about a promise that you're clinging to and that you're trusting God by faith. And if you can think of that promise, just share it with the, the assembly this morning. Share it with, with your brothers and sisters. And I, I'll start. Um, many of you have prayed for, for my children, and I know you still do. You've told me that. And the book of Proverbs is not a book that just says this is a secret formula and if you do it this way it's it's what what Solomon observed that this is the way God deals with things and Solomon had observed that if you train your children in the Lord when they're old they will not depart from it and I I have two children that are not walking with Christ with God in fact, if you ask them that they would even deny maybe the existence of God. But that's a promise that I just have to live by and claim and trust God by faith. I can't, I can't merit God to do anything 
or to earn God's favor, to try to twist his arm and say, okay, now, God, you owe me this. But by faith, I've got to trust that as a father and as my wife, as a godly mother, and we love those kids, laid in bed with them, sang psalms to them, read scriptures with them, prayed with them, witnessed with them to other people, watched their friends come to Christ, who they witnessed to, that the Holy Spirit is, is there and is going to speak to their hearts. And that's a promise that I just have to say, okay, God, your promises are superior to anything else because that's the way Abraham received every single blessing in his life. Abraham did absolutely nothing to merit any of his blessings that he got. They were based on God's promises. God's free, sovereign grace to say, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. Um, does anybody else just have a, a promise that, that comes to your mind that you're saying, I am just clinging to this one and I'm trusting it? Maybe anxiety, maybe it's worry, finances. Yes. Yes. Amen. 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 Lo, I am with you always. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We can boldly say in the day of trouble, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Those are promises. Yes. Anybody else have a promise that, yes, Rick. Amen. Sometimes I struggle with that because in life, you know, uh, you know, we see so many things happening and, 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 and I struggle with that in my heart. So how can this possibly be good? So I have to really, um, by faith, believe that, that God is saying this through because sometimes I don't see it. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rick. Maybe I have one more, two more, three more. <laughs> go ahead, Elisa, and then um, so go ahead, Elisa. Oh. Amen. Praise God. Thank you so much. Boy, that, that, that boils Christianity down right there. Faith and grace today. No works. Couldn't do anything. Keith. 
hear it all. Yes. Because we don't even hear it yet, but whatever we have, we know that we have the petition that we desire of Him. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm so glad that God deals with us according to promise and not according to the law. Um, Paul has been laying out argument after argument in the book of Galatians why faith is so superior to works and law. So the first thing that he argues is that we can't receive the Holy Spirit by works. We can only receive the Holy Spirit by trusting what God has done for us. That's how we receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 7, If anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. As the scripture has said, out of his belly, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the Spirit that those who believe would receive. So he challenged his audience. He challenges us today to say, how in the world could you ever receive the Holy Spirit on your own effort by striving and trying to keep every one of the laws and say, okay, now I've done enough to receive the Holy Spirit. He says, that's not the way it works. And then he says, how does God do miracles among you? And how does God perform mighty deeds? Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And of course, the answer again, God can only do the miracles by faith. Hebrews eleven six, But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And then he concludes that paragraph by saying, if you've started by faith, God works miracles by faith, then don't fool yourself into thinking that you're going to grow in perfection by human effort. You're going to have to do it by faith alone. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, for herein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Even as it is written, the just shall live by their faith. So perfection doesn't mean that I don't do anything. It doesn't mean that I'm passive. It means that I walk and I live by faith. That's how I grow. I grow in my faith. I grow in my intimacy with Christ. I grow in my love for the Word of God. And I step out on God's promises and I believe them and I live in them. And then Paul, his fourth argument about the law is that the law demands 100% compliance. For as many as of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. But no one is justified by faith before God. In God's presence, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us in order that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the Spirit by faith. 
So there are two promises that God has given you and I that we cannot get by the law. One is complete righteousness. That is an amazing promise that God will give you imputed righteousness. God will take your faith and grant your faith and put it into your account as totally and completely righteous. And God will grant the Holy Spirit to you by faith alone. And so Paul gives his sixth argument in this chapter of why law cannot do anything in your life other than point out transgression. That's all it's good for. The law cannot produce righteousness. The law can show you where you are unrighteous. The law can bring conviction, but it cannot change a heart. The law do that. It was never intended to change a heart. Christ transforms you and I from the inside out. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so Paul picks up this argument and says, I'm going to just use an earthly covenant, an earthly agreement that's made between two people. Now, once that agreement is made, you can't annul it and you can't add to it. You know, after you buy a house and you get into it and you realize that you've been duped, that this foundation is crumbling, it's too late. You've already signed and you've gone to the bank and you've got that house, right? And you can't go back and say, hey, redo this foundation. No, that, that's your house and you've got to deal with it. And he's saying that's, that's just a human covenant. That, that's the way it works, a human covenant decree or a human will. And once it's done, it's, it's done, it's fixed. So now let's apply that to God. If God is going to make a covenant, if God's going to make a promise, and the law comes 430 years later, it can't change any of those promises that God gave to Abraham. It can't add things to them, and it can't take things away from them. It's what Paul is teaching us. God gave promises to Abraham and his descendants as a perpetuating covenant. This was a land grant also in this covenant. If you look at the, the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, it was the land. He says, walk through the breadth of this land. Look at this land. It is all yours, Abraham, and it's going to be perpetuated onto your descendants after you. Now think about how many times Israel had walked away from God in the Old Testament. Think about the period of the judges. They would serve a judge for the duration of his life, and another judge would come and they would rebel. Judah would have a good king. Then they would have a, secret, a series of bad kings. And, and God kept them in the land because God had made a promise, a perpetuating promise to Abraham. This land belongs to you and your descendants after you. Israel did absolutely nothing to deserve or to merit that promised land, did they? In fact, when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed it, 
They were brought back after 70 years totally based on the promises of God. 1948 was an amazing year, wasn't it, in the life of the nation of Israel? Why is that little piece of real estate still called Israel today? Because God made a promise to Abraham. That's how faithful our God is to his promises. That's why I and this church teach a real millennial thousand year kingdom where Jesus Christ is going to reign as the seed of David in the land of Israel, and the Israeli people will be brought back to worship their Messiah because God gave three unilateral, unconditional covenants to his people. One to Abraham, this land is yours. One to David, you will always have a man to sit on the throne of Israel. And the new covenant, I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah and with the house of Israel after these days, saith the Lord. Not like the covenant I made with your fathers, which they broke. I will write the law in their hearts and their lawless deeds I will forgive. Now, I know the church spiritually is enjoying those covenants. We are blessed with believing Abraham. Jesus Christ is our Messiah and our sins are forgiven and God has written them in our hearts. But those prophets, they gave those promises as literal promises and they were understood as literal promises and Christ interpreted them as literal promises. And so we can look forward to Jesus Christ coming again and setting up his kingdom on this earth. Now that's kind of a rabbit trail, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He's using a collective noun that can be used singular or plural. And he's using it as a, as a singular here, even though it was intended as a collected group of people. But there's a double meaning in this word seed. God had been giving seed promises throughout the Old Testament. And all of those seed promises were pointing to Jesus Christ. The first seed promise is found in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. The seed of Abraham is going to bless all nations. They understood it, yes, collectively as a nation, but they also understood that a Messiah was coming. Out of the tribe of Judah... Jacob prophesied a scepter would never depart. Out of the family of David, a king was going to come. That seed kept getting narrowed and narrowed down and further defined. First of all, it was just the seed of the woman. Now we know it's the seed through a nation. 
Now we know it's a seed through a tribe. And finally, we know it's through a kingly descendant of King David. So Paul is using this in a theological way that's kind of hard for us to understand. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed who is Christ. The promises embraced not only Abraham and his descendants, but embraced all those who are in Christ. In the seed, all the nations would be blessed. Paul's use of this collective singular points to the universal blessing for all people, but collectively and corporately in the body of Christ. You and I are only blessed so long as we are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, Blessed be God, even our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in that seed. So it meant to go to all people, all nations, the nation of Israel as well, but it's singular in the person of Christ, and we have to be in Christ to experience those blessings. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18, when Abraham offered up Isaac on that altar, God stopped him and he said, because you have done this, Abraham, blessing, I will bless you. And in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. So in Galatians 3.29, we'll have to kind of jump out of that paragraph and, and look at this whole context to see our place in Christ, verse 29, 329. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. To the seed, all these promises are giving. And if we are in Christ, then we are Abraham's seed. We're partaking in this blessing. And we are heirs according to promise. The promise is complete in Christ. Verse 17, And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, it cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The word gave in verse 18 is the root word, Charis, which means grace. It means unmerited. The tense is the perfect tense. It implies that this gift that was given to Abraham initiated right then, and its effects go on and on and on with perpetuity. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. The promise is complete. It was God who previously made the promise, And it was validated the instant that God gave it. The law cannot invalidate God's promises. Israel was sustained as a nation and blessed based on God's grace alone. And Paul is going back here to the idea of what I call original intent or the priority of promise over law. 
And this is a, a principle that I think will help us understand a lot of difficult Bible passages. Because it seems like something happens later that may be contradicting something that happens earlier. And how does it all fit together? Well, well Jesus taught this. Jesus taught the priority of God's original intent and God's original design and God's original promises would supersede something that happened later. For example, Jesus would walk through the fields on the Sabbath day and he would pluck grain. And they would find fault and said, you have violated the Sabbath. Jesus would turn around and say, have you not read what David did when he was hungry. So he's saying there is a principle that's more important, and that's God's promises and God's design for you and I. That takes precedence over the law. When they ask him about divorce, again, they appealed to the law. Why is it written that give her a bill of divorcement? Again, Jesus didn't say that the law was unimportant, but he went back to God's original design and intent and said, this takes priority. It takes precedence over the law. And Paul's using that same principle, that the promises of God take priority over laws that came 430 years later. God is going to deal primarily with you and I on the basis of mercy and grace. That's how God has always dealt with his people. Mercy triumphs over judgment all the time. It trumps it. It's, it, it, it wins hands down. So God's original intent, when Israel requested a king, what was God's original intent for Israel? Was it to have a king? No, it wasn't, was it? But God, even in the law, gave the requirements for what a king should be like. And when they requested a king, God said, they are not rejecting you, Samuel. They are rejecting me as their king. So God allows those things. He permits those things. But he says, promises. That's primarily, that's, that's what God that's what, what the, the means in which God wants to deal and his inten original intent. It, if it were by the law, he says in verse 18, the inheritance is no longer by promise. It would nullify that. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Here's his point. You and I are to be heirs of this promise. You and I were included in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. When God told Abraham, in you, I will bless all the nations, you and I were included. You and I were thought of at, at that moment. That was in God's intent. That was his promise. And the promise is that he was to be heir of the world. Hold your place right there, and let's just go over to Romans chapter 4. And I want you to see this, and maybe this will clear up the muddy water that I'm churning up here for you. Romans 4.13. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise 
that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. He was to be heir of the world. What did that mean? The inheritance that you and I were to receive, that Abraham received, that he was to pass on to the world, it did not come through the law, did it? But through the righteousness of faith. What was it that Abraham received? Abraham received complete righteousness and justification by faith. It had absolutely nothing to the law. And the world was going to receive that same promise. So if you'll go back to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7, we will look at that verse and say and see what it says. It says, Know therefore that those who are of faith, what are they? The ones who are of faith are sons of Abraham. The promise that Abraham would be the heir, he would be giving an inheritance on to the world. It wasn't through the law. It was through the promise of faith. And when you and I believe we inherit what God has given, and that is complete justification and complete righteousness. The law that came 430 years later, it has no bearing on that. They're unrelated. Now, Paul knew in advance that they were going to ask the question, well, what good was the law then? What purpose did it, did it serve? If it's all through promise, the law has a definite purpose. And this is the way you and I are to use the law. Verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? So Paul gives us two reasons, doesn't he? And the first one is a little bit deceptive. It says, it was added because of transgressions. But that preposition, because of, has the idea to actually facilitate something. And if we don't understand that, we misinterpret this verse. It was to give transgressions its strength. That was the intent of the law. It gave strength to our sin in the sense that now sin could be accounted for, it could be calculated, and it would be imputed to us. So it, didn't, it had no ability to control transgression at all. And that's the, that's the thing that, that we miss as Christians. I cannot fight my sin by the law. I have to fight my sin by the power of Christ alone and faith alone. I have to take my sin and I have to nail it to the cross. I have to reckon myself to be dead with Christ. I have to see myself as resurrected with Christ. The law can point out my failures. This week I was reading in the, Luke, in the, in the Gospel of Luke. I was talking to a sister in Christ before the service this morning, and I said, God has convicted me. 
there was a little thing in the Gospel of Luke that just really got a hold of me where Jesus said, what you speak to the ear in the inner room, I'm going to proclaim it on the housetops. And now that's, that's a law from Jesus. And it puts fear in me. Yes, it does. But it does not have the ability, it does not have the power to control the tongue. The Holy Spirit has the power to control my tongue, not the law. The law was given to give transgression its ugliness, to show it what it really was that it could be specifically now imputed based on my actions and my choices that I am accountable for. In a profound way, the law came to make transgressions abound. And what was to produce life, Paul said, could only produce death. Understand that today. The law cannot change you. Trying to reform cannot change you. Turning over a new leaf cannot change you. Jesus Christ alone and His promises can change you. He will make you completely righteous, and He will promise to give you the Holy Spirit by which you are enabled to live the Christian life. Transgressions abound. Romans 5.20, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. Romans 7.8, but sin taking its opportunity. Sin said, looky here, I can now show what I really am all about. By the commandment, it worked. The Greek word for work is to energize. It brought to life in me all manner of concupiscence. Now, we don't use that word. It's the Greek word epithumia, which means desires and passions that are contrary to the will of God. That's what the law was doing in Paul's life. That's what it does in our life. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived. And I died. And the commandment which I thought was ordained to life, I found unto death. It was added. And here's what it does for every one of us. It shows us the hopelessness of our human situation, doesn't it? And it causes us to fall on the mercy and the promises of God. The purpose was also temporary. Notice in the second half of verse 19. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So all those promises that God was giving Abraham through your seed, it was waiting until that seed arrived. It was waiting for Jesus. The law was just this, this stopgap to show us how evil we were. And how much we needed Christ. And then when Christ came, He was going to initiate the new covenant. Where He would write the laws in our hearts. The law could not be abrogated 
the law would be abrogated, sorry, with the coming of the Messianic age. Now, this is where the Jews really misunderstood all of this, and this is where the Galatian church went awry as well, is that Jesus did not usher in what they thought was going to be the Messianic age. There is a church dispensation that was completely, not completely, it was veiled in the Old Testament. And now it's being revealed in the New Testament. And so for Paul, before he became Paul the Apostle, when he was Saul of Tarsus destroying Christianity, he was saying this cannot possibly be the Messianic Age. It can't be, because if it is, that means the law has been set aside. But we don't see a king on the throne. We don't see our enemies under our feet, and we don't see the land of Israel under our dominion, but it's under the Roman dominion, so this cannot possibly be the Messianic age. In fact, the Jews' rabbinical teaching that Paul would have been familiar with would have taught him this, that at the coming of the Messianic period, the commandments of the Torah would come to a close. And here's the irony for Paul, is that he realizes that it had come to a close, and everything that he tried to do in his own power, all it did was show him his failure over and over and over again. He said, I would not have known sin, except the law said, thou shalt not lust. Thou shalt not covet. Then I knew that I was a sinner. Even though I lived by the law blamelessly, I violated that law. The third thing that Paul says about the law is that the law took mediation. When you give a promise to somebody, it's face to face. It's man to man, woman to woman, whatever. It doesn't take three parties to work all of those things out. The law, on the other hand, was mediated through angels. Now, we don't understand that when we just read the Old Testament. We read about Moses going up and God giving him the commandments. But in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2, it says that God, through a myriad, excuse me, a myriad of, and the, the New King James says through thousands of saints, but that's not necessarily the translation that's proper. It's the Hebrew word kodesh. And the ESV, I think, has it right there. It says, through a myriad of the holy ones came his fiery law. And I think the Jews understood that, that this mediation, when, when Moses was up on the mountain. There was this myriad of holy ones surrounding him, bringing him that covenant, bringing him that law, because Stephen alludes to it in his address before he was stoned. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 53, Stephen says this, Israel received the law by the direction of angels. So this was understood by the Hebrew people. It was understood by the Jewish people. We don't see it as well and clearly as they understood it, but I think that's exactly what Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2 is talking about. 
So the law required this mediation. And then when Moses came down, what did the people say? They said, Moses, we don't want to hear the law, right? Remember when they said that? Lest we die. Moses, you be our mediator for us. And God actually said what you're saying is actually good because one day I'm going to send a prophet just like you, Moses, and whoever doesn't listen to that prophet, I'm going to require it of him because that's pointing to Jesus. But Paul's point here is that it had the mediation of angels and it had the mediator of Moses between the people. And how did God give it to Abraham? God gave it to Abraham as an unconditional, unilateral covenant. In other words, unilateral means one-sided. That's what it means when it says a mediator is between two, but God is one. God is so superior in the way that He deals with promise. It's all based on what God does and His goodness, His faithfulness, His trustworthiness, and that His word can be stood on, has nothing to do with you and I. And God made it so clear to Abraham when he went out and he looked and he says, these stars are going to be your seed. He says, how shall I know that, God? Let's enter into a covenant. Let's enter into some kind of agreement so I can know that this is going to be fulfilled. And so God told Abraham, you go out and get the animals and you set them up. And then God put Abraham to sleep. And while Abraham was asleep, In the middle of it, this horror of terror of darkness overcomes him, and he sees a blazing torch going through those animals. And the Hebrew word to make a covenant is karith, which means to cut. God cut that covenant himself with Abraham, and he said, Abraham, if you don't keep this covenant with me, you are not obligated, but I will die in your place. That was the gospel in Genesis chapter 15. God said, I will die. I will shed my blood, Abraham, for you, even if you can't keep this covenant. That's how superior the promises of God are for you and I. Well, what are some applications that we can live our lives by? One of them is simply trusting Jesus alone, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2 says, For if the word, and I think this is allusion again to the law, The Hebrews understood this. You and I, not so much. But the writer of Hebrews says this, For the law that was spoken through angels proved to be steadfast, and every violator received a just recompense of the reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Let me just put that in simple English. If you got punished for breaking the Mosaic law, how much more are we going to be punished if we don't accept Jesus Christ as our Savior? That's pretty simple what he's saying. He says in the Old Testament law, people died under the law by the mouth of two or three witnesses of how much more punishment shall be given to those who took the covenant of Jesus and trampled the blood under their feet. Hebrews chapter 10, 29. So we need to take this covenant, we need to take these promises seriously. Number two, how do I apply this? All of our consolation that you need today, 
every comfort, every hope, every change of heart and change of behavior, you can take great consolation knowing that it's based on God's promises to you. Hebrews chapter 6 says, Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise, that's you and I, the immutability that God is unchangeable. Let me just slow this down. God He wanted to show us how wonderfully unchangeably He is, His counsel. He confirmed it by an oath. God swore by Himself, blessing I will bless you and cursing I will curse those who curse you. God confirmed it. So by two unchangeable things, God's promise and God walking through that covenant, two unchangeable things that will never, never alter whatsoever. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. We can have strong consolation. When? When we flee for refuge to lay hold on the hope that is set before us. The law cannot do that. God's promises can. The law condemns and the law divides, doesn't it? The law is good about dividing people. Grace is the answer to bringing division back. Law can never do that. It brought Jew and Gentile together, something that was unheard of. The law convicts and shows failure. The promise of righteousness in the Spirit is the gospel. The fourth way that we can apply this today is the fulfillment of the promises is found in Christ. He is the promised seed. Build your relationship with Christ. The promise of God is based on a very different basis. It's an act of God's free choice to bless you and I in Christ. Lastly, how should I use the law? When you're reading the Bible and you're saying, okay, this is convicting me. This is challenging me. This is showing me my sin. We go to what Paul said in Galatians 2.19. I use the word of God. Paul said, I, by or through the law, it showed me that I had to die to the law so that I could live unto God. So what am I saying? I'm saying when God shows you and He convicts you by the Word of God as you're reading and studying and having your time with God and He's speaking to you and your heart is open to Him and you say, okay, God, you've convicted me and now I'm taking this and through this teaching I am dying to myself and I'm confessing that I need you so that I can live unto God now through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if I have confused you, I'm sorry. (laughs) I struggled with this passage, as you can see probably, and I prayed over it and poured over it and meditated on it. And the, 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 the amazing thing is, is how deep God's word is. I have probably studied the book of Galatians 50 times in my lifetime. And that's not an exaggeration. 
I've taught it over and over again. And yet every time I come to it, God takes me deeper into it. And I wish I could have done a better job of explaining it and exegeting it. But this is what I want you to walk away from today. That God's promises are the way that He wants to deal with you. Those are the things that give you consolation. That's what gives you great hope. That's what gives you righteousness. That's what gives you the Holy Spirit. And it is all done by faith alone. And don't let anybody tell you that faith is a work. Now, I'm not going to get on that rabbit trail. But I've heard it over and over again that you have got to wait for God to do a work of faith. That is a bunch of baloney. You wait and God will never do it. God's given you his word and now he wants you to step out and walk out into it. In fact, the Bible is so clear that faith and works are juxtaposition. Faith is not a work. It is the diametrically opposed to it. All you're doing by faith is saying, yes, I am receiving and I am submitting and I am accepting all that God has promised me. Because if you think you've got to work it up or you've got to wait for God to do some prevenient work in you and regenerate you and then give you the gift of faith, you're going to be waiting a long time. You respond with what God has shown you. God showed Abraham the stars. He didn't wait to be regenerated. He didn't wait to get the gift of faith. He said, God, I believe you. And at that point, God accounted it to him for righteousness. Let's close. Father, we are so grateful for the promises of God, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Today, we can stand justified because of the promises of God. We can have the Spirit fill us because of the promises of God. We can live with joy. We can live with love. We can live with hope. We can live with patience, goodness, kindness, and long-suffering, all because of the promises of God. The law could never do any of those things. It points out our transgressions. It makes those transgressions abound. But God, I pray that those things will make us flee to Christ and through the law, die to the law as a means of trying to live and live unto God by the Holy Spirit's power. I pray this for our church today in Jesus' name. Amen.